0: Welcome to X Chateau, Ex Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young.
1: Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're continuing our discussion on the future of wine retail from a different angle. Today, our guest is Thatcher Baker Briggs, founder of Thatcher Wine Consulting, who's a consultant turned retailer and exclusively online retailer.
0: Thatcher, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show with you guys. I was
1: wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief background on yourself and how you got into wine.
0: Absolutely. So my background... Starts in restaurants. I started cooking at quite a young age, and that has been a passion and still is a passion for me for my entire life. Since I was 10, I basically was like, Oh, I want to be a chef, and that has never really left, even though now I'm not <laughs> a chef. I still cook all the time and would at some point like to have a restaurant. And after about 10 years working in the kitchens, I gained a little bit of exposure to different wines and didn't really know so much. And I hate not knowing things. And so I just kind of Dove in and started reading and I became obsessed like a, a lot of things. And then, yeah, decided to pursue the sommelier route and gain some experience on the service side of restaurants, was hooked. And a few years later, after spending a little bit of time in Japan and seeing the wine industry from a totally different perspective. I came back to San Francisco, spent a few more years helping to open a restaurant in San Francisco with the Saison Hospitality Group, which is where I had worked for a few years prior to that, and decided to start a company where we would help to sort of navigate the world of Burgundy and help large collectors manage their wine collection. And then in doing so, found that as much as I love And to be honest, I could just drink Coastery and Roublier every single day, but there are a lot of other wines that I love. And so I wanted to develop a way that I could share the things that I'm excited about that are happening in the world of wine, whether from Champagne or younger producers in Burgundy or Germany. And so just started a small online boutique website and that started going just before COVID and we saw a little bit of success and then said, you know... It can still remain boutique in a sense, and it can still remain curated. But uh, you know, we can add to our inventory a lot. And then the beauty of being in California is you can have a, an import license, as well as a retail license, as well as a wholesale license. You pretty much do whatever you want. And so we started an import company and working really just with first or second generation winemakers that are really looking through their own lenses and doing things the way that they want to do them, not just necessarily the way that it's been done at the domain. And uh, a lot of the producers that we've started working with are in their 20s and 30s, and just making wines for the future, making some pretty impactful viticultural decisions. And so, yeah, and so now we have that and... No one quite knows this yet, but we're actually in, in the process now of because the company now is called Thatcher's Wine Consulting. So we're actually going to kind of break things up a little bit and the wine consulting will continue to remain very exclusive. And because we really just work on a retainer basis with a few clients and we will let the online retail platform kind of take its own course. And so we'll split things up. It will still all be under the same umbrella, but the e prep platform has been, so much fun and it's been so exciting to actually bring access to wine that is hard to find in California. And so we're going to let it do its thing. Wow, that's a lot in a short period of time. So
2: why did you decide to start the wine consulting business? Was there, did you see a gap in the market or what brought about that change?
0: It was completely organic. A friend of mine and also regular guest of the restaurant, she had just reached out and said, hey, you know, every time we come to Saison, you just magically appear from somewhere and help us select some wine that we really like. And every time it's awesome. And so could you like do that at our house? And I said, Sure. I mean, that doesn't seem overly complicated to me. I'll just get a few cases of wine together from some people that I know and, you know, have it sent to your house and whatnot. And in doing that, I realized that it's one thing to have a bunch of like racking and bins in your house of like 5,000, 10,000 empty spaces, but it's like a whole, (laughs) it is a very large project to fill those 10,000 holes with bottles that are ready to drink now from great producers that are real, that are in good condition. And so I just, something in my mind sparked and I said, I think that we could make this process easier for people. That was really how we started the company.
1: And how quickly did you start the retail, actual e-commerce side of it? Because that's a little bit more wider consumer facing, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's much wider because the e-commerce platform, anyone can go onto the website. It was about a year and a half when the idea had kind of come on. And really what happened, what was happening were was some of these clients were saying, hey, I need something like today or now or tomorrow and we had to rely on other people to fulfill that and i so we would have to go to another retailer and say hey like i need you to like ship this today and then they would say oh i don't know if that's possible and i'm like no charge me more and they're like ah we i don't think we could do it and so i said well what if we just had a small inventory of some just really fun things that when someone says hey i need some old champagne or i need some really great white wine for a gift or whatever that we would very easily be able to fulfill these requests for people. And so we started just building a small inventory and then I was like, well, now we have a small inventory. What, you know, what if we just put it online and people can just buy it? Like, okay, that makes sense. And then we're like, well, let's expand and expand. But then it happened very quickly, you know, the site was live pre-COVID and so we had a bit of like I guess online equity if you will. People had already kind of been purchasing for a little bit and then when COVID started, we saw The demand and a lot more traffic kind of come on, and it really took off.
1: Yeah, it seems like you specialize in finding rare—not necessarily old—I mean, some old—but rare and hard to get wines, like wines that would normally be super allocated and only a small subset of people can get them. What skills have enabled you to have that focus on that—that like these really hard to get wines? Like, what's required to get access to these wines, and also to you know be able to get them into the U.S.?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're a little We're lucky. So, you know, I worked in San Francisco for 10 years in a variety of Michelin starred restaurants. Noah was the same thing when he came on. We worked together at Cezanne and he's been in the industry for 20 plus years. And then we also hired Courtney, who was the wine director at The Modern in New York. And so we have all these really amazing relationships with importers and distributors in the U.S. And so we were very it was easier for us because we could leverage those relationships. We had already been buying from these importers previously. So really all that I did, and this is not a business secret, this is just like being a good person. Like I just called all of them and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. We don't have a lot of money, but like, we'll pay our bills on time, we'll make sure that the wines are sold for a, not always the most expensive, but a fair price. And we'll be honest and genuine and respond to your emails, respond to your text messages, respond to your offers, even if we're not buying. And everyone was like, well, that's very refreshing because every time I send offers to every sommelier in the world, they never respond to emails. And you're like, cool. So we just developed an edge by responding to to emails.
1: Responsiveness, the (laughs) (laughs) future
0: of wine retail. (laughs) Honestly, it's amazing. And now that we've started an import company too, it's so funny because in even the retail platform, the people that just simply respond to emails in a somewhat timely manner have such a major edge on everyone else. It's honestly hilarious.
1: Wow, I love that takeaway. So you do buy these like hard to get wines. How do you know that these are like Authentic and legit wines, because obviously these wines are in high demand, have really high premiums. Do you have a process for authentication?
0: Yeah, I mean, so for like just the cool geeky stuff, I think the thing that's the most concerning, like in regards to like Lamy Calle or like Nicola Far, Pedrus Blancas, or you know these really cool hipster wines, in terms of like the, if they're real or not, that's not usually the, the biggest concern. We just want to make sure that the wines have been stored correctly. If, depending on where we're buying them from. But we have some pretty hard rules. For example, like for DRC, we won't buy it if it doesn't have a Wilson Daniels back label and it's not coming direct from the original owner, we'll almost never buy the wine. Because for me, it's not worth it. The exception being if the wine's from Canada, because they also it's kind of they have Halpern is like the Wilson Daniels of Ontario. But generally speaking, like that's like a safeguard for us. And then it gets a little bit deeper with everything. You know, we've explored going down sort of on like a wine authenticating, you know, working with like Marine Downey or whatever. And I think that there's like some very valuable lessons with those bottles. But it's so funny because there's so many instances that like you can't even authenticate it. And like there was a bottle of 78 Romani Conti that came from Chambers and we saw the bottle and my instant reaction was like, no, it's fake. Why would Chambers in San Francisco ever have imported DRC, it doesn't make any sense. And so I had to talk to Chambers and they called Suzanne, the owner of Chambers, and she's like, No, we never imported DRC. Oh, wait, one time we imported this one vintage nineteen seventy-eight direct from DRC. And you're like, Well, it's just like one specific instance. And it's hard to always authenticate these really unique instances in the wine world. And Jay was terrible for this. I mean, like just whatever corks he had, he used. And so it's really difficult, but you have to be so careful when you start getting into those wines. And a lot of times, because we have a lot of clients wanting to buy magnums of Jay Richebourg and whatnot, and if there isn't some sort of documentation or it isn't coming from a very, very, very very trusted source, it's not worth the risk. So we're really careful with it because ultimately like a hundred thousand dollar sale is not worth losing a client for because sure, that's a hundred thousand dollars in, you know, in revenue, but in lifetime value, that's really, it's not worth it.
1: And I'm curious on how you would differentiate your online retail versus like a Vinfolio or a Benchmark, who definitely specialize in a slightly higher tier of wines, but maybe not as as hot or culty wines that uh, are, you know, unicorn wines that are going to really hard and high in demand now. That you do, like, how do you differentiate yourselves with those groups?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I mean, like, I love. It's great to see big businesses seeing success, in, especially in COVID, it's great. I think for us, I would. In in Benchmark is a great example. They. Took on venture capital that is, they have to pay back large returns. And at a certain point, when you take on so much capital, you just need revenue and you just need inventory and you just need to sell whatever. Because if you're not having a constant revenue stream, then the business will fail. And so I would rather make a very nice, comfortable living and having a curated selection of really wonderful wines that are on the website. And we do not have any wine that I don't want to drink. I just, I won't buy it. And same thing, you know, when we're working with allocations and importers are like, can you buy this? And, you know, you need to buy this to get to that. And you're like, I don't want to play that game. And in Benchmark's scenario, that's $50 million plus in, in annual revenue I mean, you just need like any wine (laughs) because the entire market cap of wine is like, you know, a fine wine is only a a billion, a couple billion dollars. So $50 million is a pretty substantial slice from that.
1: So what I heard the differentiation is that every wine you sell is a wine you would gladly drink. And basically, if I like your palate, And I can trust, even if I haven't heard of it or it's a new producer, I can trust that it's something that you would have at your dinner table some evening. And so, a thousand percent.
0: Yeah. So you're putting
1: your face on basically the company in terms of like the curation of your list.
0: Exactly. And if I like it and the team is like, no, like, eh, are kind of so so about it, then we're just like, okay, never mind. Let's skip it. It's not worth it. Let's find something else that we think works. And yeah, it's, that's just the way that it works. And I would rather do that than massively scale up. I think you can do both. I think you can't have a billion-dollar wine company and you know have a curated selection, but I think you can have great revenue and delicious wines that you're truly passionate about. So going back to the wine consulting part of the business
2: that you started uh, originally, what is that business model? How does it look like? You mentioned clients are on retainer, but how do you even find clients if you're not working at the restaurant anymore, and what makes clients keep coming back to you?
0: Yeah. So for us, the way that it started was a handful of clients that I knew that I had a personal relationship with. The first few had actually just reached out naturally, even prior to the business to say, hey, we would love to have you help with this. And then when I started the business, they were like, cool. And you meet more people at their dinners. They refer friends or colleagues or other wine collectors. We get some inquiries on just through email or just organically that are not referral basis. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't, but generally it's referral. And I guess the beauty of the wine consulting business, and this is why I also feel like I see other sommeliers trying to go down the route of starting a wine consultancy, is that you don't need to have a thousand clients to have a successful business. And you really can't. We basically cap it. And once we feel like, okay, there's a little bit too much going on, we just don't take any more clients for the year. And almost entirely every client that we work with, sometimes we'll do maybe a special event or a special dinner for just someone that inquires. But generally where we work with them on an annual retainer basis because If you want to set goals for your cellar, set goals for your journey in wine, your education, whatnot, it's not something that you can like just flick on a switch. And we have had clients reach out and say, hey, I don't know anything about Burgundy. Teach me and just fill my cellar, you know, next week with wine. They're like, okay, like, Yes, I can get you a million dollars of wine in a week, but like it's not going to be as good if we just take our time. Like the prices will just be more expensive because there's a rush and we're not waiting for great opportunities. So we generally work with people on a yearly basis. And so
2: a lot of retailers are trying to complement their offerings with wine or cellar consulting and you sort of went it from the opposite way. Do you think that they just go hand
0: in hand? There's just a natural synergy there? I mean, I think that there is. And I think that this is why I'm interested in kind of just slightly splitting things up just a bit. And it's because as a consultant and as an advisor, you can't only advise people on buying your own wine that you're making a margin on. That's not really what we're doing. And that's not the goal. So I think for all of the retailers that are out there that are starting a consultancy or advisory service or whatever and it's fine like go for it but from a collector's perspective you kind of need to have an entire world view of everything that's going on and you have to say like you should go buy this wine from benchmark or I probably never say that but you know like you should buy this at auction or there's a supplier in Europe that's like has this really beautiful case of wine like let's get it there and that's what we do from the consulting side of things from the retail side the beauty of how it works really nicely with the clients is we can get something like and this is a perfect example we got in 17s from Berthozier Bay love for wines i think she's super, super talented. And none of them have ever had the wines before. We had them, we bought them, we sold it to them, they tasted it. And then they're like, can we get a visit there? Like, how do I get a, you know, can you get me a thousand bottles of her wine? And you're like, well, no, but we can get you some. And so it just kind of plays all together with that. So I think, you know, other retailers that are doing it, that's fine. But the focus And the ability to really have the bandwidth and time to spend with clients and not take a margin, not make money off of it, that's, I think, a pretty big factor that kind of separates us.
2: You mentioned that the consulting side has a lot of challenges that you didn't expect when you first got in there and looked at the 10,000 slots and figured out what to do? Could you give us a flavor? What are those challenges? What makes that a lot more difficult than people might think?
0: Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is that while for any consultant, I think wine consultant, no matter how organized and how efficient and how hard you work, you're still having to deal with A very old wine world with generally dudes that have been in the industry for 40, 50, 60 years that have a completely inaccurate Excel spreadsheet of inventory with wrong vintages and, you know, wrong producers. And then They have to ship the wine and then they don't ship it correctly or then you're dealing with, you know, FedEx or UPS. And so the logistics of getting wine is always really challenging. And then when you start to loop in working out of Europe, it's a whole other crazy thing where you try to order wine and then you don't get an invoice for four months after sending 13 emails just being like, hey, let me give you my money. And they're like, oh, no, not yet. Not yet. And so like those sort of challenges that you're really working with a very old school type of suppliers is always really challenging. And then I think the other really challenging thing of, about working with, I mean, let's be honest, when you retain someone on an annual basis to help you build your wine collection, generally, you have some expendable cash, right? You're generally pretty wealthy. And so communicating to people, to large collectors that are used to just kind of getting yes, 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 to say, no, you cannot have 2000 bottles of Loa Musini because she doesn't make that much of this wine and is always like a really challenging thing to to talk to people about but it's also really fun and you also see so much of the industry and you see so much of the collectors that when you get into it and you get used to it you start to be really efficient despite everyone else being very inefficient.
1: So you talked a little bit about the consulting customers and how they're fairly affluent people with healthy amount of disposable income. But I am curious on the retail arm, like that clientele seems like it must be slightly different, you know, obviously giving, you know, you have a wider breadth of wines that are in there anywhere from as low as $25 up to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So I'm curious on what does that customer look like for the actual retail side? And have you seen it change since you started? Have you seen the demographics change a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think you definitely have a way larger spectrum because obviously we have, you know, thousands of people coming to the website every week and purchasing. And some people are only interested in the 20 to $30 bottles. And sometimes people are only interested in the $1,000 bottles. And sometimes it's a mix and match. And I think it's really, I think regardless, and this is really something that like the team and I talk about, it's like, regardless of whether somebody's buying a case of wine that costs 300 bucks or 300,000, they should really have the same level of service. They should still have the same level of communication. And obviously, like naturally, it makes more sense to focus on the people that are buying $300,000 cases of wine, right? But, you know, those are anomalies and they come and go. But the people that are generally spending 300 bucks a case are the people that go to the website three times a day. And they're really excited when you put a new bottle on the website and they just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. The people that are buying hundreds of thousands of dollars per bottle or per case or whatever, they're really just looking for very specific things. And they're not always, but they're General, what they purchase is just very specific and other people. So we try to make sure everyone is really getting the same. You know, we respond to emails in 24 hours. Like that's always like a, a big thing. Again, back to like what I said at the beginning, just respond to emails, but just open communication conversation. And even if somebody just sends an email and says, Hey, like, can you give me a suggestion of six bottles of wine? And like, I want to spend a total of $150. That's a lot of work for a very small amount of revenue, but I think it's still important that they're still getting everything that they need because everyone should just be treated equally. It doesn't matter how much you're spending on the bottle.
1: You know, when I think about the US market and like, obviously we have these archaic three-tier system laws that are in place, you know, we're importing and then distributor and then retail, obviously California and DC have some ways around that, but Years ago, you'd hear about this kind of like gray market space where people were like sourcing from wines. I think of like going way back to like Garagiste and they would do the email blast and kind of get things. Now things have all kind of like upped their game into having sites. But also in talking with retailers, we find that even a lot of retailers to get some of these allocated wines that they want to source, they have no way to get it if their customers want it outside of not going through the traditional three-tier system. So I'm curious for you, like obviously that term gray market was never, you know, was kind of, is now kind of frowned upon and it's really kind of the lines have blurred greatly. Like this is kind of just how you have to operate. And this is the world you live in. Like you're talking to us right now from Burgundy. I'm actively, you know, sourcing wines for the last month. So I'm curious on how do you see this space kind of evolving? And is this something that all retailers should be doing, should be having people travel and sourcing direct? Is that the state of play that you think, you know, at least in California and DC, people should be doing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, so I, look, I think you can have a very successful business from an e-commerce platform. I think you can have a very successful business wine website from just only purchasing from distributors and importers in the state that you work. You can do it, you know, if you make a site that's like functional and doesn't look like you're trying to steal people's money and like you have some sort of content on the website and pretty pictures, like you can make a nice business. For us, because we're curated, we spend the additional time of coming to Europe, meeting producers, meeting vendors, meeting suppliers. I think and obviously, because we're in California, it makes things much easier because we can have an import wholesale and retail license. And like, for example, like Mike Zima from Sompix is a very close friend of mine, we talked every week about this kind of stuff because there aren't so many young wine retailers trying to implement some sort of like technology to the back end. And he's one of the few people that I can talk to with this about, you know, he was in New York and then realized that like, I can't do what I'm doing in New York. I have to go to California because I can't, I need the, I want the ability to have the wholesale license as well as the retail license. And so I think that the Three tier system is being challenged more than ever. I think a lot of it really honestly stems directly from the domains. They're really, really bad with understanding the market of wine, which is fine because, in all fairness, I mean, a lot of these producers, we can just speak to Burgundy, a lot of these. Producers are really just one, two, maybe four people that work at the domain full time. Like Rulo has four full time employees in Sean Mark. And so there's five people, and you have to prune and you have to pick the grapes and make the wine and move the barrels and bottle it and label it and entertain and have tastings and whatnot. So it's very hard to have a full view of the market when really a lot of these producers are really just farmers. But it also really doesn't make sense for 50% of, Production of a wine to go to like Switzerland when twelve or twenty four or sixty four bottles comes to the U.S. It's a three hundred million for almost four hundred million person population, and I don't know what the population of Switzerland, but it's not much. And so I think that that needs to change, and it, it's slowly starting to change. I think with the very big generational shift, especially in Burgundy, where you have twenty something year olds. Daughters or sons taking over for the parents, they are asking these questions because it's kind of silly. And then the price that they sell the wines for is also a little silly. Like, I saw an invoice last night for X Domain Russo, and you're just like, why are you selling Russo Chamberton X Domain for 300 euros? Like, it just doesn't, it's selling for $3,000. And so you have the importers in the general three-tier system, taking such a large margin. And then the retailers taking such a large margin. And to me, that doesn't make sense. And so then you have people going to the domains and knocking on the door saying, hey, well, I'll pay 2000 euros for the bottle. And then they get a bit of an allocation and they sell it to someone else. And then it makes it back into the US market. So that is kind of the biggest challenge that I'm seeing today, is that the distribution from the domains really needs to get a little bit more organized because it's just ridiculous. But it's not easy for retailers to do. And then you start you piss a lot of people off, which I'm okay with. I think it's fine. I think that like at a certain point when you start to build a business, you have to make a decision and say, okay, who are the people that I'm okay pissing off and who are the people that I'm not okay pissing off? Well, I'm not okay pissing off the winemakers. I want the winemakers to be happy. Everyone else along the way is kind of not as important, you know?
1: So I'm curious on how and where do you source wine and how important is that to your business?
0: Yeah, I mean, so for us, I mean, I want to work with, I like to work with importers in the US, of course, because especially being one now and kind of getting it going, like it's very interesting because they all started somewhere, very few domains in their first vintage were ever popular or sold out right away. It happens now because of Instagram and because of really great stories. We're just gonna to start to import this young kid who has spent the last several years at Bizot and then before that he was at Boisson vido and now he's making wine with coasterie barrels. You're like, cool, like done deal. But generally that's not the case. And what importers some importers do well, is they really build brands. And I think that it's important. And so Bernard Bonin didn't get to where they are now. They took Martins like six years, seven years before anybody even knew who those wines were. So I like to support importers. I challenge them. I say, hey, like these margins are insane. You know, the general margin would be currency conversion, then one5 Plus, like, in a little bit of addition for transportation, maybe two dollars a bottle. But then you're like, okay, that's the general margin. But also, like, if you just look on WineSearcher, it's thirty dollars in the UK. <laughs> I could just buy it in the UK, and you're charging me fifty. It doesn't really make sense. So I like to support importers that are aware of what is going on and not just this old school. Here's my numbers. Here's my margin. Here's the price. We buy some stuff from private collectors. You know, We do a lot of work from Europe because like you said, it is really one of the only places to get a lot of these wines. I mean, you can't find Le Bay in the US. There's nothing, but there's literally thousands of bottles of it all across France that you can find. And so we'll go and find them and bring them to the US. And if the importers are upset about it, then you know, talk to Julian LeBay about it. It's not my fault. And I'm not undercutting the market. I think that's the difference. If I was selling at 30% below wholesale cost, sure, that's really annoying and frustrating and you should be really mad at me. But if we're pricing somewhat in line, yeah, of course, we want to be well-priced. But otherwise, I don't really think it's too much of a problem. So, let's
1: walk through an example because I think that would help our listeners. so like I was recently in Chablis and I stayed at the hotel in the city or in town and and it they had Raven twenty fifteen on the list, you know, at a restaurant for hundred and twenty euros and I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna drink this every night I'm at this hotel because it would cost me ten times as much in the u s yeah. And so, you know, in talking with William Kelly in our, one of our episodes on, you know, giving some context around Burgundy, he was like, yeah, you, you can go buy a Magnum for 100 euros direct from Domain if you have that connection. And the next thing you know, that's $2,000 in the US. So I'm curious, on like, where is that money going? And like, so you guys carry Raveneau from time to time. And if you search on Searcher, you're one of the few places that are actually going to pop up frequently that's having Raveneau. So that, you know, that's why I'm using this example. So you get it directly, I'm assuming, from Domain. You're going to import it directly so you're going around Kermit, you're not going around, you're not going through Kermit Linux, you're going direct through your own importation company. You're yep. importing yourself. Why are the markups? I get the the American part of me, the capitalist part of me gets like the market deems what the price is, the price is what the price is. But you can't even find those wines. At least on your side, I can find it. <laughs> right. And <laughs> yeah. so it's like <laughs> so. I'm curious on like there seems like a lot of inefficiency or inequality in the traditional setup. And that a lot of people are making money. And it's not Francois Raveno, who's, there's not the Raveno family, domain revenue, who's making the money. It's all the people in between. And I'm I'm a little confused on how this is going for so long.
0: It's Raveno is probably the best example. Yeah, Raveno is probably the best example because, yeah, I mean, like Clo Magnums are like 75 euros ex domain. You're like, (laughs) why? It doesn't make any sense. But they, sell out every single year the loyal customers are always loyal and they make a great living and it doesn't require work i get that it's a little crazy to me and i think that kind of stems back to you know what i was saying where a lot of the challenges and issues on the retail side is of actually getting the wine is that the distribution is really broken i think from a pricing perspective also, from a retailer, I think it has a lot to do with who has the wine. I think when uh, like new vintages are released, a lot of people put very small margins and they're like, oh, I want to be the cheapest. And then it sells out right away. I think it's a fine balance between having great pricing and being too expensive and then pricing it to the point where it is actually going to be available for someone to buy. And I use this example with Nicola Far quite a bit because a lot of times a lot of people know about the wines and people are crazy about the wines. You can't find them. He makes a very small amount of wine and when they're released, everyone puts they make them so cheap that everyone just buys everything. And generally, the people that are actually buying the wines are just other retailers that buy the wines, hold on to them for five years, and then they'll sell them plus hundreds of percent, you know. And so I think that's kind of like an interesting thing to think about from a retail perspective of like, don't be expensive. Obviously, I think, you know, I see people putting crazy prices and just kind of like Lois just basically held up. and. But I think You have to be cognizant of the fact that, one, when you have these really, really rare gems, if you're selling them at like crazy low prices, they're not going to generally end up going to the people that you actually want them to go to. They're going to go to somebody that's like a little bit more sharky and just trying to corner the market on all these releases. But yeah, I mean, the distribution is really tough from France. It's a hard thing to correct.
2: So technology is really changing the wine retail landscape. You have everything from like Drizzly to get things delivered in an hour, or however long it takes, to Instagram and even TikTok now. How do you think technology really changes and is incorporated into your business?
0: For us, it's really important. For us, it's the back end for me is as important as the front end. And so obviously, from a purchasing perspective for our customers. We want them to have a very streamlined, easy checkout process. We want the site to be functional, blah, blah. The back end for us is where we spend a lot of time on developing because we want to have as much free time as possible. So the way that we create products, the way that we price products, the way, and it's a little more complicated because we do pre-arrival. So when those wines show up, we want everything to be automatic and transparent and switch over from pre-arrival to in stock. And we want The photos to automatically map to the products and all of these things. So we spend a lot of time doing software development. We have a team of developers that kind of work with us, and we give them a lot. And it's really just about making everything faster, more efficient, less inaccuracies in inventory, more information for pricing, correct naming, et cetera, and et cetera. I think in technology, it's amazing how wealthy generally the people that are buying these really expensive bottles of wine are, but like the, the lack of any relevant technology, there really isn't, and, and I think even if you just think about it like wine searcher, cellar tracker, that's it. <laughs> Delectable. Like there's just really not much technology. But I think it needs to happen. But I do think it's interesting to see how it does change the wine world a little bit. Even with something like Wine Searcher, all of a sudden you now have this worldwide view of pricing and this person has this bottle. Wait a second. Why does this person have this bottle? I never got that bottle from an importer, like things like that. So it's with technology and with information, it's highlighting a lot of things that people didn't have access to prior. So I think it's really interesting, but it definitely needs to happen because it's honestly, it's amazing how little technology people have. So does that mean you're
2: developing a custom backend e-commerce system?
0: Yeah, we've, well, we have an inventory software, like we use Zoho and then we, our website is on Shopify, but we've custom built, The entire integration of Shopify into Zoho, which does have a native integration, but it didn't do what we wanted it to do. So we just custom built it and then we built custom built a variety of apps so we can do things like if you place 30 orders for example like one bottle at a time over 6 months like we can very easily just select all of those 30 orders and like ship them together and it's hilarious because a lot of like if you ask benchmark to do that you have to like pay 15 bucks or something and just it's really interesting so yeah we're spending a lot of time on building a lot of custom back end stuff
2: So do you think there's going to be some disruptive trends in wine retail
0: enabled by technology? I think you know I want that to be the case, but I think we're going to be a very long way from that. And I think that's because, one, wine is not a transactional. It is a transactional thing, but it's not a transactional thing. It's very relationship-based. So just because there's this cool app or something that you can like purchase the wine more easily or maybe a little bit cheaper. People still want to buy from the person that they like and that they trust. And so I think a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to develop these apps and they will be successful because the people that are spending 10, 15, 20, 25 dollars a bottle will use these platforms and it will be super successful. But the people that are looking for Arnola show or whoever, they're going to go to the sources that can ultimately get them the wines that deliver them in good condition and that they like. And people just call us and they're just like, hey, Thatcher, how are you? And I'm like, good. What's going on? What can I get for you? And they're like, oh, nothing. Just wanted to talk, see how you are. And you're like, okay, great. But The human aspect of this is the biggest aspect, and that applies from getting the wines from the domains. The winemakers are only going to give the wines to the people that they like. It's as simple as that. If it's an introduction or you meet them at a dinner, and it's the same thing even with doing what we do now, I mean, we have to, at some point, when we only have six bottles of something, we need to prioritize those six bottles to the people that... (laughs) respond to emails. (laughs) And, you know, and so like those little things, it's yeah, there's such a human aspect that I don't know yet if we're ready for some sort of totally digital platform for wine buying. But trust me, I've been in a lot of calls for it because if there was a medium, I think it's going to be very successful.
2: Got it. So you deal in this rare wine space. What's your view on rare wine pricing? We've interviewed a lot of wine investment companies and their whole business is built around price just goes up over time and continues to go up. Is that your view as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think wine is always going to get more expensive. I think with Burgundy, there's a bubble for sure, but the bubble can't burst because there isn't enough wine for it to burst. The pricing recently in the last nine months or so is honestly pretty crazy. I think we have to be careful. I think that one, we're going to start cutting out a lot of drinkers. Like, I've never seen more Davinet and Loire in my entire career than I have in the last six months. And that's because someone has decided to buy everything and put it at such an astronomical price that no one is actually buying the wines. So there's Lowa Mucini all over the place. There's 600 bottles of the wine made, but I've never seen more Lewa Musini. It's not fake. It's just somebody said, oh, I'm going to put this at $100,000 a bottle. And then eventually the inevitable is going to happen. And that's very sad. But then eventually someone will buy the wine. And you're like, Okay, I guess that is fair, and you can make a lot of money off of doing that. I prefer not to do that. I'd rather someone buy the wine that's going to drink the wine, and rather than just hoisting up the prices and going crazy, I don't think that the prices will ever go down. I think the only price that you'll start to dip is probably like you'll see it at Romani Conti, you'll see it at LaTosche. I don't think Llois will move, but I don't think it will continue to increase the way that it has. Bordeaux has been pretty stable for the last little while. I think at the highest, highest end, you might see a dip, but probably not for a while, probably not for five years, because now the prices are higher than ever. The demand is higher than ever. And then, 19, 20 and 21 in Burgundy, there's just, there's 21, there's literally no wine. So the bubble can't burst because nobody can get the wine. And so the prices will continue to climb for a bit. But I think depending on what happens in the next five years, you'll start to see prices just not go down, just settle a little because people will just say, I can't buy anything. (laughs) So.
1: Basher, to wrap up the episode, we want to take a little reflection and and I have to, I'm going to caveat this in that you probably drink better than almost anybody else that I follow on Instagram and I'm always envious of what your week looks like from a wine consumption perspective. But if you had to look back over the last year, what do you think would be the most memorable wine you drank and why?
0: Ooh, the most memorable wine that I drank this past year, I think there's a couple bottles one was actually with William Kelly at his house. We drank a bottle of 64 Giborg Aligote, not an expensive bottle of wine, but it was truly profound. And I think it was just a, it was just such an inspiring moment to have a bottle that has been cared for for so long and the condition is perfect. And then just to share it with William and talk about the wines and see how it evolved. I think that was really a special bottle last week. We drank a bottle of 1959 Rousseau Claude La Roche that was like outrageous. And it was incredible because we were with Louis Michel from Ligier-Bel-Air. We were with Jean-Luc Pepin from the owner of Vogueway. And we opened this bottle and we're just sharing it together. And everyone at La Paulette just said, like, this is like the best bottle of this whole thing. And just being with the winemakers and them all saying like, hey, can I get a little bit more of this wine, please? Is just like such an incredible experience. So that was really a memorable bottle that I had this year. Awesome.
1: Well, look, anybody who's not following Thatcher, please do. We'll put links in the show notes, Thatcher Baker Briggs on Instagram or Thatcher Wine Consulting. Please check those two out and follow along and actually sign up for your email offers as well, where you get a lot of up-to-date context on everything that he's bringing in. Thatcher, we want to thank you for joining us on the show and covering this new space of retail that really hasn't been talked about before. So uh, I'm super excited with all the information that you shared with us.
0: Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was great to talk about the industry and what we're doing and just happy to be a part. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.